The night of February 5th, 1976, George and Kathleen Lutz and their three children fled their home in Amityville, New York, and never returned. For them, the horror was over. Their living nightmare shocked audiences around the world in the Amityville horror. But before them, another family lived in this house and were caught by the original evil. The Lutzes escaped with their lives, but the previous owners weren't so lucky. Father, bless our new home and watch over us as we become a part of this. For the Montelli family, it was their dream house until it turned into a nightmare. Who's there? What was in this house? No. What evil could drive their son to madness and destroy everything and everyone he loved? Amityville 2, The Possession. Okay, hello, welcome to The Locust Files. I'm your host, Lee Gambon, here today with the wonderful Mr. Brian Norton to talk all things Amityville and beyond. I'm sure we're going to digress multiple times and riff on a bunch of things. But just a brief bio on um, Brian. Brian Norton has an MFA degree in film production from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts graduate film program and a BA in cinema studies from Sarah Lawrence College. He wrote and directed the horror film Penny Dreadful for Showtime Networks with a generous grant from Warner Brothers starring Friday the 13th's Betsy Palmer as well as the recent horror hit All Hallows Eve 2. He recently signed with Eli Roth's Crypt TV as a, t- uh, as a writer, a director of genre content for their new in- internet platform. Brian teaches film directing and screenwriting throughout um, the United States since 2001 and served as the chairperson of the New York Film Academy for 14 years. He also has consulted on several documentaries, books and articles relating to the history and analysis of the horror genre, including Butcher Knives and Body Counts, Essays of the Formula, um, Frights and Fun of the Slasher Film, Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher Film, Corman's World, Exploits of a Hollywood Rebel, and the upcoming documentary, well, it's now out, um, uh, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. He has written articles for Fangoria Magazine, Delirium, Gorezone, and other horror publications, including Diabolique. Um, and his book, which is what we're going to primarily talk about today, um, for God's sake, get out the making of the Amityville horror is due out next year from the wonderful folk at Bear Manor Media. Hello, Brian. Hello. That bio sounds so good. <laughs> I must have written it. <laughs> yeah, it's super impressive. You should be very proud. Well, I'm realizing, hearing it out loud, that a lot of those those highlights there are because of you. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Getting to you want to hook me up with writing for Fangoria and Diabolique and uh, I don't know we've never 
officially met, but we've known each other for years, right? Yeah. I th- so just to give a background on that, um, back in 2013 is when Cinemaniacs, my film collective, sort of started. We formed then. And one of our first screenings was Amityville to The Possession. And uh, Brian and I connected with a mutual love for that movie. And because we were screening it, I had interviewed a bunch of people from it. And then I thought, well, I've already built rapport with these people. I'd love them on camera to do a video intro for our screening, which was at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, um, which is sadly no longer, but resurrecting itself soon after this stupid plague ends, which is at the time of this recording, the plague is still going, guys. COVID-19 is still going. But we had this beautiful recording with Britannia Alda, Diane Franklin and Bert Young. And Brian went over to Bert's house and did the interview for us, which was really lovely. Thank you for that. That was awesome. I, it was my first time. I mean, I live in New York for many years, but it was my first time in Long Island. So, and I brought uh, horror himbo Joe Zaza with me. He's from Rhode Island because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to find it. And we get there, and it turns out that he went to high school with Bert's then wife, and now we're all besties. So that was a fun day. <laughs> That's amazing. Made me look really cool in front of all my students. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, so, Brian, let's talk Amityville. Let's dive into that. So, when was the first time you saw the first film? Was that um, its original run back in '79? Um, what was your What were your feelings on that first film? And how, how is your have you how have your feelings progressed um, throughout time throughout these last thirty odd years? Um, forty now, actually. Fuck, it's as old as me. Um, with that with that movie, like, how, how, do you still love? Of it as much as you did as a kid well you know sometimes we romanticize things that we saw as a child you know yeah and uh i can see as well i'm very happy it exists and uh, it was a huge part of my childhood i i was this film nerd and this was back i mean i'm only 50 but this was back before film nerds were cool it was like <laughs> why do you want to watch that stuff and you know why aren't you outside but and this is the birth of the VHS boom, like the first generation VHS kid and a uh, video disc. Mm-hmm. So it was one of my first video discs. I missed it in the theater, um, but I had the, uh, the the flippable CED video disc and um, I just watched it all the time. You know, honestly, and I, I, I mentioned this in the book, the only, the only time I'm getting personal in the book, is I learned this from Peter Racky, is during the introduction. Mm-hmm. The rest is going to be making up, trying to keep myself out of it. But um, I can't honestly say ever thought it was scary. I really, I really like it, and I love the music, and I, I love so many things about it. But mm-hmm. um, I just remember, I wish it had more shock value. But I'm so glad that it exists. I mean, I, I think that without that little dream scene of Margot Kidder getting the axe in the head, it would, it would be TV. TV friendly, right? So. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does some t- somehow read like a TV movie, like a really glossy TV movie. I just, it was, yeah, it was intended as one. That's what I, I learned. It was right. a, a TV movie, yeah, and uh, it was going to be directed by uh, uh, Laird Laird Koenig, who did uh, Little Girl Lives Down the Lane, right? Oh, that uh, was that that was Nicholas Gessner who did Little Gessler, yeah, 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 and written by Laird Koenig. 
Who had written it, yeah. Right, cool. Wow, wow, that's interesting. Because, I mean, Little Girl, that's really interesting that you mentioned that, um, because Little Girl down the line, lives down the lane. As a kid, I always thought that was a TV movie. But then yeah. doing work on that and interviewing Nicholas Gessner, who was wonderful, by the way, just a beautiful, um, beautiful mind there. Um, uh, it's a theatrical piece. <laughs> you know, it was a, it's a theatrical yeah. piece. But it just felt like a TV movie. Also, because it had Scott Jacoby, and he was such yeah. a TV dude, you know. Bad Ronald. That's right, absolutely. Um, so Amityville, uh, you mentioned that's, the music. That, that's, a, that's a couple of movies that people remember as a TV movie, and I don't have them off the top of my head, but they always come up in this conversation, and right. uh, just people have it in their head. So, But um, Bad Ronald actually was one of the, well, just while we, we mentioned that, yeah. was one of the very first paying jobs I ever had. Because when I was in grad school, I went to grad school with snobs, you know, and a lot of them are working in horror right now, but they were like, why would you ever watch that kind of stuff? Same stuff as I was growing up. <laughs> right. And I was at a film school, you know, the elite film school, and people, I was the one who liked that shit. And right. now they're directing the Chainsaw sequels and everything. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I'm not bitter. Um, but um, I had... Uh, Roger Corman's wife was our chairperson for a year, Julie Corman, you know, and I grew up with all those posters and she took a shine to me because I was the only one who knew what she did. And she she would say, well, come on, you know, let's, well, what are some movies? And I said, listen, there are, as a film nerd, people can come up to me and say, I don't remember the name of the movie, but I can tell you one scene and please tell me what the name of the movie is because I've been searching my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I've had this my, my whole life and it's usually one of three movies. It's usually Bad Ronald, uh, 1959's Imitation of Life, mm -hmm. or um, this, oh my God, this, this one other one. So she's Bad Ronald and of course, it's based on a book, mm -hmm. and uh, so she was going to have me go back to the original book, which I read, which is really quite disturbing. I mean, if Ronald is like fat and covered with pimples, and yeah, rape. yeah, Jack Vance, yeah. wonderful book. <laughs> she looked into the rights and she said, "Well, why don't we just call it Bad Donald?" <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I did. I did work. This was years ago. Ultimately, it never got made. Like most of the the. The jobs we get all excited. I, I wrote a chopping mall too. Right. Set at Christmas, you know. Made the mistake of telling everyone it's coming. Chopping <laughs> <laughs> mall when? Um, but anyway, that's my bad Ronald story. That movie scarred my life. Yeah, it's it's really effective. So the yeah bad Ronald, amazing. So I remember that as well as a kid seeing that and that affecting me as well because what I loved mostly about that was its weird shift in household owners like Dabney Coleman stuff comes in because I remember like going oh the mum's dead what's going to happen now is he just going to go crazy on his own no another family's going to move in and there's a change so that could a second part to the story kind of really affected yeah. me for some reason and then him lo losing his own mind in his own little fabricated world of a, of a train a trana that he creates which was always really cool as well but that's that's really interesting that it's kind of a house, a home-based horror movie as well, as the Amityville films are. Um, yeah. uh, so with the Amityville horror, you just mentioned earlier, one of the major uh, core components of the film that really affected you growing up watching it was the score. And I'm so 
impressed and so happy that you got to interview Lalo Schifrin because I feel like the score for Amityville Horror is definitely one of its strongest components. Can you talk about him and the music and how you know how that came about and his conversation with you about scoring oh, and scoring the sequel as well? Yeah, well, that's the part I really wanted to know because I had never really heard him talk about that. You know, he's he's talked about the original so much. He, sometimes he try he go he would go on autopilot. Right. Um, but the thing, you know, I tried because I can sort of crib and quote many articles. I, whenever I would get somebody, I tried not to be repetitive with that. But um, uh, with with Amityville. Uh, he had worked with Stuart Rosenberg many times before. He got an Oscar nomination with Stuart Rosenberg, and he was telling me that it was such a a, a, a not beautiful shorthand to work with someone that you had uh, previously worked with. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the the story that he tells is that uh, in God, centuries ago, there were two notes that if you played together, it would you could get um, sentenced to death for. It was called the Devil's Music. Mm. And uh, he and he, he got on the piano and started to play it for me. But uh, one of the down notes in Amityville was like the forbidden note. And he put to rest that legend that the, was the rejected score for The Exorcist, which it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> people like you and I, we look back at 1979, and he was busy. Right. You know, he was he was scoring some some trashy movies too, uh, like Airport 79 and stuff. So, um, which but, we uh, love. <laughs> wonderful things about William Girdler and you know it, it was it, it was nice it was just a, a nice nice thing to talk about and it added some you know real credibility to the book cool. he, uh, he, it, it turns out that he worked mostly with the uh, with Dino um, on uh, part two um, instead of the directors you know he was the one who called the shots surprisingly mm-hmm. Yeah, a wonderful, wonderful guy, and he would he spoke Italian. Dino spoke Spanish, so they would communicate that way. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. And you're right; like Lalo's music is so um, uh, diverse. Like every every score is so different. He's one of those those composers that can do that. Like uh, you mentioned, Girdler, Day of the Animals is so minimalist. Minimalist, and there's a lot of synth work in that. And it's it's sort of it sounds a lot similar to um, Jerry Goldsmith's um, Planet of the Apes. It's got that aspect to it. There's a lot of influence there. I can almost guess what year a Lalo score is. I always say Lalo, it might be Lalo, um, but I can usually guess because they use, you know, sometimes he'll, he'll be into a particular instrument or sound. Right. But he, he was he was wonderful in the sense that he really thought about which instruments this particular project would need. Mm-hmm. You know, and that Amityville 2 was all... I forgot what it was. I have to check on the interview, but he, he, he avo- it was very different from Amityville One, even though it sounds similar. He avoided like all something, like all strings or something. I don't know. But, right. And uh, what he was able to talk about the fact like he got on the piano and started to play. Oh, 
Oh, it's amazing because it's so funny you mentioned that when I interviewed Pino Donaggio, uh, me and Ryan Clark interviewed him over the phone with Maurizio Rossi, oh yeah, to, to to do the translation, and he started to play the carry theme. And I was like, oh fuck, that's too much. It was just chills, like you know, it was too much. It's amazing the main theme. Oh. Um, but yeah, the the Lalo thing that I love um, as far as the first Amityville film is the use of the child choir, and that becomes kind of a staple in horror films. You know, with if you think of once again Goldsmith with uh, Poltergeist um, you know Children of the Corn there's a whole bunch of movies that sort of come out yeah. of after that which it, have it almost became a cliche afterwards yeah yeah, yeah. Now, if you remember a wonderful made for TV movie called The Legend of Lizzie Borden mm-hmm. with uh, Elizabeth Montgomery I think that was that's in my memory one of the first ones to use that sort of creepy la 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 yeah but uh that was a, a wonderful score too. Well, one of the interesting things about Lalo, Lalo, is well, and also you and I are loved for uh, cinema. I don't know how old you are, but Amityville Horror was always available on LP. Yeah, it wasn't like a special order of Saraban. It was like you could buy it anywhere. I don't think it ever went out of print. <laughs> That's true. I've got two copies. <laughs> yeah. And it's got that infamous uh, disco movie or Amityville Frenzy on it. (laughs) He he claims to know nothing about that. He said, I'm an artist, not a businessman. He said he didn't know anything about any kind of releases. He didn't know if Amityville 2 had been released. So so he completely stays out of it. He says, I'm not in this to win awards. Uh, You know, he didn't. He, he claims, oh, oh, oh yeah, he got an Oscar nomination for that. Wow! Can, did he did he mention his favorite film to work on, and also his favorite score that he's composed, or one of his favorite, or some of his favorites? Surprisingly, his favorite job was Amityville Two. Really? The biggest he said it was the it was the easiest job and the most pleasurable. Wow! Okay. Yeah, and, and of course he speaks Italian, so that was a nice uh, shorthand. Yeah, yeah. He said that they were wonderful. I read in another interview, and I didn't want to overlap that he that he uh, really, really loved working with William Girdler. And even though that Ed Montaro was notoriously cheap, he said they always paid me my salary. The checks never bounced. They were wonderful. <laughs> <salary."> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, we all know the story there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to do a a documentary on on Ed Montaro from Film Ventures, you know, the guy who disappeared with all the money. Yeah. But, but then I found out that there is like some sort of special feature. But I was really into that project, and I didn't know how many filmmakers that you and I know that actually worked with them. Frank Lelogia from uh, um, Lady in White, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, he and he 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 and Edward Tite, you know. Yeah, I know. It's 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 incredible. I think you should pursue the documentary. I think it, it deserves it. The featurette's fine. Another one you're talking about, but yeah, a whole documentary would be amazing. Uh, so we're back to Amityville. So look, Amityville Two, the Possession's my go-to Amityville film, um, and that fil- I mean that film just has everything going for it. I feel like all the performances are really amazing. They're top-notch. Everyone in it, you know, heart on their sleeve, and it's really interesting to see kind of the the marriage of a whole bunch of different people because you 
you've got Andrew um, Prine in there, who's only got a small role in that film, and he's like, you know, this major star. Like, he was in The Miracle Worker and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then you've got, you know, uh, p- character actors who are doing really pivotal roles, like Burt Young in the Rocky films, etc. Um, Ratanya Alda, who's, like, in everything, you know, amazing, you know, new Hollywood actress of the 70s onwards. And then young star- stars sort of coming up, you know, uh, Diane Franklin had just done The, the Last American Virgin, and, and Jack Magna is this kind of find, you know, this De Laurentiis find. Yeah. Ha- what, what, what are your thoughts on the casting of that film and the performances and the dynamic there? And also just getting to know these people and, um, you know, w- interviewing them for the book. It's, it's fun and it keeps these other stuff. Most of the people preface, um, listen, it was, you know, 30-something years ago. I, I don't know how much help I'm going to be. And then they don't shut up, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But I, I even went down to, like, uh, grips and ads and uh and uh did sound people and i get the skinny on everything mm-hmm. and i'm doing a wonderful chapter called terror in tom's river where um it's because it was a really big deal in tom's river new jersey where they shot the exteriors um, I'm, I'm i grew up like half rhode island half martha's vineyard which is jaws mania mm-hmm. and people still talk about that but the amazing Endless story, personal stories people have about shooting, like James Brolin smoking a joint, Margot Kidder roller skating in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn, you know? Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, Amityville, Amityville 2 cast is uh, is really good. Plus, there's some really good character actors in small parts, like Moses Gunn. Um, yeah. And uh, Ted Ross had recently done The Wiz. That's you know? right, and, yeah. And, uh, well, that's what I mean. Like he he plays he goes from playing the lion in the Wiz, <laughs> and then pops up in this small role, you know, like as a as as a cop. Is he a lawyer or as a cop? Is the cop in he, it? No, he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. That's right. <laughs> what I found interesting was um, that he, he had to go to Mexico, and he would he would be in Mexico for several weeks. Mm. And it's like it's one thing if he was a New York actor just going to Long Island to shoot, but uh, or New Jersey. But they're like, wow, he, he was really there. And uh, uh, Danny Aiello Jr. plays the maintenance man. He was there for a month. He had a very big part. Um, there are, I finally got a hold of the drafts of, of, of scripts, and uh, it's amazing what was in there. Um, Andrew Prine had a huge part. Right. He was there for the whole shoot, I, I heard. Um but uh, uh, he filmed scenes like getting on the subway, racing there. There's a scene in his apartment. Um, yeah, I amazing. Because he's he's yeah. kind of like the father dyer character. So I, I guess they, yeah, they, right. it, it reads like there would be more of him. And it would be it's weird just to cast Andrew Prine in that role where it's his, you know just pops up taking you know um, the the lead to camp James Olsen camping and <laughs> stuff. Just setting itself up for jokes. <laughs> always like come on let's hit the road and yeah make up sweaters. and there was a camping scene of the two of them and uh, it's just it's just right for parody but uh i i used to think why why is andrew pride in this movie serves no narrative purpose other than someone for the priest to talk to hmm. um but uh Ritania's character in the script is introduced as a buxom blonde <laughs> right interesting 
So, the, so I, I've interviewed Tommy Lee Wallace about it, and he was saying that there was originally in one of his scripts, and please tell me um, more because I need to know more about this or get this goth with this wonderful book coming out from you. But the original idea or the original concept, one of the original concepts was to have a through line, a Greek chorus kind of character who was a reporter uh, reporting yes. on, on the Amityville saga that happened, uh, I guess, reporting on the murders. What the, What's this reporter's character's role? Can you explain on, a bit on that? Well, that was, a, we didn't get into that much because he said that that was a very early draft. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've seen like two or three drafts, and they they, they, they keep getting uh, more streamlined. I don't I don't think Dino liked that. It, it's it's interesting because they, they would they would uh, take over a floor at the Mayflower Hotel in New York, and it's not like Tommy just wrote it and handed it in. Like he was on. I mean, he had to go to work every day and would like come to Dino with pages and stuff like that. So he had a little nook in the corner. So they were sort of. You know, he was writing it, but sort of Dino was overseeing it. Like, I like this, I don't like this. So that was just really interesting, you know. At the at the Mayflower Hotel, so there's a whole staff, because you make a, a small little company to make a movie. Mm. And, uh, oh, I should have been there. That's what I keep telling Martha De Laurentiis. Like, I just, I, you needed me there. You know, <laughs> glorious time making movies. Um, you know, there's two movies that are going to be mentioned a lot and one of them is ragtime and a lot of the uh-huh. actors in amityville two and three come right from ragtime yeah. which is uh dino's movie uh dino de Laurentiis, with so. milos foreman directing yeah milos foreman so it's like we got uh, these are the repeats we got moses gunn ted ross james olsen robert joy the producer bernie williams set designer george satisha um and just a lot of the small players. So imagine if was, imagine if James Cagney's last film was Amityville Two. <laughs> that would be so good. That would be kind of awesome. It would challenge uh, Betty Davis in uh, burnt offerings. Yeah, that's right. That, it's interesting, actually. Um, I I um just found out recently that um, James Cagney, when he was doing Ragtime, he actually. Um, he cl- he was a closet fan of Hair, the musical, the rock musical, and he, he knew he knew. I heard that you mildly adore. <laughs> yeah, and he knew that um, uh, Milos Forman was coming in to direct uh Ragtime, him in Ragtime, and he had this one sheet for it, and he actually gave it to uh, Milos Forman, saying, you know, you can keep this, and it, it, which is quite lovely, or something, you know, or get signed it or something, which was really nice. That whole kind of generational thing of like a new Hollywood meeting the old, which is pretty cool. Well, that's what De Laurentiis did really well, didn't he? He kind of married these generations beautifully. Yeah, Ragtime. I mean, I recently looked at it again. I hadn't seen it since a kid. It's a big picture. Yeah. Um, it made nothing. You know, it it did not, all those Academy Awards, and it was a it was a flop, but mm. um, it's something that that in the movie Wolfen come up all the time because most of the crew was on Wolfen. Cool. Like Martha, Martha De Laurentiis was on Wolfen, and you know I'm one of the people in the camp that Wolfen uh, Wolfen is a terrible movie, even though it's got these defenders now. But um, <laughs> talk about you know, that they 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 did they did uh, some heavy lifting to keep the production problems out of the press. I mean, we, we know it had production problems, but apparently it was really big. Um, and, and, and adjusted dollars, that's one of the biggest flops that people don't know. It ended up being $34 million, and this is in 1980 money, um, on a $9 million budget. Wow. 
Wow. I mean, and you know, it's kind of the underdog in the year of the wolf, 1981, right? People don't really... Well, people don't talk... People always forget um, the Larry Cohen one, Full Moon High. They always ignore that. That also came out in 81, (laughs) alongside The Howling and American Wolf in London. But yeah, well, I like Wolfen. So you're not a fan of Wolfen. You've made that clear. No, I think it's it's pretentious, but... um, you know, it, it's like you've got the finished movie and everything. When people like a particular director, I mean, I, I never go by directors anymore. When, mm. when, once I learn what a director does, I, I, I'm the least auteur-oriented person. But but that's an interesting choice there because Michael Wadley did Woodstock and for the life of me, I can't think of anything else he did besides Woodstock. Yeah, no, he was an, an interesting choice, sort of like a documentarian Joe Berlinger mm. being hired to direct Blair Witch 2, which is a narrative, not a... Um, but uh, from what I understand, you know, the, the from what I hear, it's just he didn't know what he wanted, he didn't know how to direct, and, I mean, that's that's terrible when you got people standing around, and, uh, you know, people love The Shining, but Stanley Kubrick would do a day of a shot of people opening a door, and that's almost offensive to me. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Uh, they they said the the, the lack of of, of uh, film craft that uh, Wadley had was legendary. And did you ever hear about um, Albert Finney almost punching him? No. <laughs> One more take of this, and like lecturing him on how to direct actors or whatever. But uh, anyway, it's it's, it's it, uh, Wilford to me is much more fun to talk about than it is to watch. Right. I always. <laughs> yeah, but Martha uh, started uh, her career with as a casting assistant with Sis Corman on Wolfen. Right. So, yeah. And but it I... kept a lot of people employed for almost a year. So amazing. So I love that, that there's those nice connected um, films, and I love that Ragtime and Wolfen are the two. That's really amazing. There's there's a picture for you. I like the diversity there. Um, uh, it's funny that no, ra- so I didn't know that Ragtime was a flop because, I mean, it's based on a major novel. The musical yeah. adaptation's hugely successful, like when it came out in yeah. the early 90s. So it's, it's, it's a powerful story, and it's sprawling. It's a big thing to sort of a put to screen. Picture. So, but, yeah, that's really... Oscar nominations, but uh, no. So I think that's that's why Dino started to buy all the rights to the to the the, the horror films. You know, he mm-hmm. bought the rights to Evil Dead, to Halloween, to Amityville. Mm-hmm. He knew the so, fran the franchise was the franchise thing was happening, and it was sort of becoming a big boom industry yeah. for sure. Smart man. Um, so Martha, beautiful. Um, I uh, organized her to do an interview for a Blu-ray release of Orca, uh, which yeah. which was something that she was sort of didn't have much to say on because she was just starting her career. But um, she she did recall certain stuff and that was really nice. And you you gotten to know her really well, which is cool. So tell- I got to know her really well. And what's so funny is that she says, she, she promised me nothing is off limits. And that includes... You know the salacious gossip about her being like low end of the totem pole, and the the production supervisor who worked on Amityville two and three said um, the biggest difference between Amityville two and three was Martha's car. <laughs> <laughs> During that time, she went on to have an affair with Dino, and she talks candidly about that and the trials and tribulation of his uh, children, sort of saying, you know, who are you, right. Shiksa, whatever. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but she set me up with so many people. She's, uh, you know, for all she knew, I could have been writing a school paper, but um, she put me in touch with so many people. 
I had a problem with Tess Farber. She's like, do you want me to call her? You know, like, <laughs> with the wonderful Bear Manor who writes books. That I would love to meet the people who buy them because I thought I would be the only one who would buy them. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, I remember telling Ben Omar, like, who's going to want this book other than me? You know, but um, I, I was looking for a form and one of my good friends is Peter Brackey and I really like his Crystal Lake Memories book mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to make it exclusively uh, sort of a, a making of book not a critical analysis mm -hmm. it's more of a making of you know with call sheets and just all kinds of goodies that people have given me about the production about the release about the successes about the failures about the legacy it had where they filmed it and uh, there'll be chapters on um, you know looking back on the movie I've asked a couple of wonderful writers their reflections on it um, one thing I originally was gonna do just the first three um, but then when I was coming up with a title it was just really misleading I don't want to say Amityville trilogy because it's not a trilogy yeah it goes on <laughs> yeah, I hate that. I hate that franchise um so i decided i will cover the other ones not the homemade camcorder movies when people say there are 19 films in the franchise yeah no some of the it's <laughs> only a couple that are canon but i will cover them in a, a less in-depth way usually i mean i got a wonderful director with uh frank calhoun who did amityville the awakening and what a guy and it might not be a great movie but the the trials and tribulations he had making that, that is going to be a juicy guy. That, that chapter is paid in place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I got a wonderful interview with Steve White, who either produced or directed the, that boom in the eighties of the direct to video ones. So but all, all those in a way are legitimate with rights and based on a book and stuff like that. And of course, Dan Ferrans who did, uh, Amityville murders. Uh, I'm not, I haven't written the part about the remake I don't know. I'm just not really not interested. Mm. So, but uh, it's got to, it has to be covered. So the, the form is always taking shape. Now, one of the, the things was, it's like, I, I didn't want to do an analysis. I wanted to do the making of, but when I, I got excited, when these amazing pictures came my way from original negatives, and most of them have never been seen. Martha had her staff go through endless boxes in her garage and she, she found these like hundred pictures from Amityville three and our friend Mona, Mona, yeah, Mona, she, uh, he, um, gave me some wonderful never before seen pictures of, uh, Amityville two, which solved a lot of mysteries about what actually was filmed and what was cut. Mm -hmm. And also the cast and crew rated their, um, memory boxes and, and gave me some of their photos so then I became really excited about this. Uh, maybe this can be a scrapbook or a picture book. Um, so these pictures are absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So uh, even if you just buy the book for the pictures, it's amazing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've, and I've been lucky enough to um, see some of these pictures. Brian has been very, very generous and showed me them. And I can tell you, I was blown away. Being a huge fan, let me backtrack to my personal experience with Amityville 2 and how it means so much to me and why it does. As a kid, I saw it and it really affected me. And it would get to the point where me and my cousins and friends would actually reenact the Montali Massacre. <laughs> and we'd have we'd have goes at playing um, Sunny. Um, sometimes I'd be Diane, sometimes I'd be the mum or the dad or the kid, but most of the times I was sunny. But then um, Amityville 1 was also quite influential as well. But that's very healthy. But the second one really did something. I think it was just more, it just affected me more and it was terrifying. So to see photos that I've never seen before, especially bloody deleted scenes, sequences that would never, were in the print at all, that was a big deal. We can, we can say it. Okay. Parents morphing into fornicating pigs or people with pig costumes on. Amazing. Oh my god! Amazing. Obviously, obviously a ripoff of The Shining with the you know the bear giving the blowjob. Yeah. So, yeah. But, um, anyway. <laughs> but it does. It's cool because I remember like as a teenager, you know, the whole thing with pigs, um, sprawled on the walls and stuff. Was as a teenager knowing about the Manson family, etc. Uh, I was like, oh, is that is that a reference to that? Is it a reference to, you know, um, the Bible? Um, you know, swine and stuff is always referenced in the Bible. What is it? And then you, you friggin' years later, <laughs> across the globe, send me this picture of Ratanya Aldo and Burt Young as pigs fucking. And it's cool because it's kind of, it goes back to that beautiful, that really poignant scene at, at his birthday party where, you know, you know, look at them, these disgusting pigs or whatever the devil's saying in his Walkman. But can you tell us where this scene fits in? Because it, once people... Once the readers see this image, they're going to be blown away, especially if they're big fans of the film. Well, I thought I, I thought I knew everything about Amityville too, you know. And and plus, some of the things that, that are on IMDb and trivia, they're just not true at all. Uh, they get passed around like that. There was graphic sex that was filmed, and they had to cut it out with test audiences. None of that is true. Um, Diane said, "But what you see in the movie is what was there." But um. When I was interviewing uh, one of the effects guys, Stefan Dupuis, he was like, um, and he hadn't seen the movie when it came out, he was like, oh, I just remember Damiano and his Italian accent saying, my beans, where are my beans? You know, when, when they're, he said, I was putting the finishing touches on the actors for that scene where they turn into pigs. And I said, what? <laughs> and I assumed because he's he, he wasn't a big fan of the movie at least then that he was getting it mixed up with something else right and you know because he had done so many movies well well whatever and then when i get this folder of these negatives and there's two pictures of naked people dressed as pigs i immediately sent them to you do you remember like don't share these but oh my god can you believe this and uh, it was true none of the actors remember um right i think are they meant to be the? They're meant to be the parents, right? They're meant to be the parents, and uh, um, uh, I'm. I think it's when Sonny might be stalking the house because it's filmed outside of a door, and it's a POV, and uh, it might be when he's stalking the house, um, and uh, they're about to kill them. Mm -hmm. So, because um, uh, no, none of the scripts that I have. Done, include it but martha didn't remember it um the, the actors certainly weren't aware of it um i'm surprised how many of the actors didn't really get to know each other because you know they were filmed in scenes that were separate like you know i only met the kids twice i only have you know so um but uh 
yeah, the, 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 the fornicating pigs again. Amazing. I no because yeah, it, I, I think it would throw the massacre sequence. Cause that sequence is incredibly like it's, it's terrifying and it's really effective. Um, yeah. just the, that image, the, the final image of, um, she, when Diane Franklin runs into him and he's cackling, that's just, that's, you know, stays in you. That's kinder trauma, you know, right there. But also if and my guts of the guy from kinder trauma, who is so wonderful when I read his stuff, he got such a way with words. And I have a chapter that I, I asked him to write a chapter on explaining what kinder trauma is because Amityville 2 is kinder trauma for everyone my age. Mm. Um, people remember that. But uh, getting back to the, the pigs, you know, I think maybe when it came out, that would have looked silly. But mm-hmm. today, that would have been avant-garde art today yeah. it would be heralded for that you get the you know the pretentious directors you know like <laughs> whatever when free or whatever but that's the kind of stuff in there so i, I wish it existed i think it um, would throw it would throw the mood though uh, you're absolutely right i think it would be yeah. a little bit too surrealist for what's going on um because yeah. we're already like accepting the fact that sunny's face is disfigured so let's just keep it at that um, yeah. <clears throat> but I think I think that's really interesting. But what you're saying there, because it would have gone into sort of dreamscape realm. Uh, but it also does nicely tie in the them being referred to as pigs, um, which is yeah. cool. Um, but yeah, that whole sequence. There is, a, there is a, a, a a pig motif. It's it's just it's just interesting because uh, I just wrote a chapter called "Dishonor Thy Father, Pigs," mm. um, and there's there's a few more subtle references to pigs throughout. Um, and uh, yeah, so this, yeah, this, uh, there's a couple of really important themes that are repeated over and over again, and some of them are completely cut out. But uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the one of the drafts of the script I have is pretty epic, like a complicated movie to make, right? So, but um, I, I would like to quickly tell my, my uh, history with Amityville 2, yeah, um, if I may. Um, I was a movie nerd. I'm the youngest of nine children and, um, by many years. So I think by the time that I was around, they, they didn't give a shit about, you know, cause they were all pot smoking hippies. And then I come around and I'm a nerd. So I was usually allowed to watch R rated films. It was interesting because if there were boobs in it, no, but I could watch like people getting slaughtered. But, um, you know, you remember Amityville one is a fairly innocuous movie with, movie stars you know james brolin was you know all the moms had a crush on him Mm -hmm. so when amityville 2 just appeared i begged my mother to see it and uh that is a hardcore movie i think that's one of the reasons why it's popular now but that is an ugly vile depressing beautiful movie (laughs) and uh i i was 11 and i took her to see it and uh at one point probably 30, 40 minutes of the film, she grabbed me. She's never done this before. She said, we're leaving. Wow. And, and I love that now. <laughs> Do you mean, what, what was That's really fascinating, Brian, because just to bounce back to the first time I saw it as a kid, it was me and my sister. My mother had gone out. My mum was a big horror fan and still is. Um, so yeah. she, she was always like, yeah, let's watch this, let's watch this. And she, she would always have to sort of defend her uh, letting me watch this stuff to her friends. And, and she'd always say, Lee loves horror movies because he wants to write about them. And this is like me as a child. And he understands that, you know, the graphic makeup is all fake, blah, blah. 
So she had to defend herself. But she was out one night. My father hated it. And the and he turned the fucking TV off at the moment when Sonny licks the crucifix. Being Roman Catholic, he's like, what? And he turned it off and I cracked it. And I remember running into the kitchen and my sister saying to me, don't worry, I know that our cousins, Eileen and Adrian, uh, you know, around the corner have just taped it. So we'll go there tomorrow and watch the ending. <laughs> that's funny that your father got to the crucifix. because Yeah, where did your mum stop you? Where did you where did you drag you out of the theatre? The incest. Well, uh, the in, you know, it might, it, I remember it was, it was probably the start of him killing the family. But one of the things which most people gasp at, which is just a throwaway scene in the movie, is when the little boy goes to get a drink and she throws a plastic bag over him. Mm. For some Back in the 80s, that was a really big deal because like kids were dying from that. And that was such a, a – you're the one who explained to me that, that it's the little girl slowly being uh, – um, I think they sort of dropped that subplot, but the, the influences of the house. Mm. But for a lot of – it didn't play that way, so it's just like this vulgar thing thrown in. But I have never seen more people gasp at a moment. Isn't that bizarre? Like that. That's yeah. really – it's, and, it's uh, like uh, when you hear people talking about The Exorcist – and there's all those great those reports where you know Reagan's EEG is what people went crazy about. It's like squirming because of a, yeah. a needle in the neck. You know, with everything else, it's like, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's you know it's really interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. but that I want to talk about that. So so the deleted scene stuff. Like, oh. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Sorry, no, that's cool. The deleted scene stuff is interesting. So uh, besides the pigs, there's all that stuff involving Jan and Mark where they're playing with the Ouija board and then just trying to drown him. So there's this yeah. sort of subplot there. Do you know, have you got insight into that? Was there people who remembered aspects of that? Did the kids? There are, no one remembers that. And one of the most fascinating interviews I had was with the children's mother, Magda mm. Katz. Cool. And... Uh, I just got a side note. One of the beautiful things about this book is that different people's memories, uh, they totally conflict with each other. And uh, it's certainly, it's not going to be whitewashed. There are people that hated each other. I'm going to include all of it, you know. (laughs) There are people throwing each other onto the bus. It's amazing. Um, But uh, Magna, I I asked her about that, you know, and uh, she's like, what? I I remember remember the bathtub scene, but... uh, yeah, you know, she didn't. She didn't remember that that was a you know something that was happening with Jan in particular. But uh, I didn't realize this either. I wasn't sure until people explained it. The whole Reagan possession in The Exorcist is because she played with a Ouija board. Um, and in Amityville too, that was the same thing. It was the kids play with the Ouija board on the day they move in, and that is what uh, causes it. And of course, that is um, scrapped now. But mm-hmm. that's what wakes up the demons or whatever. But isn't that interesting? I mean, they were really they were really pilfering from the exorcist. So, but I would have loved to have seen Evil Jan. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, just as a sidebar thing. But um, and and because there's also that line that's kind of like a bit of a a loose end that um, Ratanya Alder says when she and that's a really nice theatrical staged moment after the really full-on domestic violence sequence which is another aspect of the movie that really struck me as a kid watching it Um, you know a very volatile Italian family but the scene where she sort of grabs the gun and she pulls away and she goes what's happening to us Um, so it's kind of this whole idea that everyone's affected by the house not not just you know one person I remember that that 
was one of the scenes that the studio had uh, uh, given out to um, reviewers, and that was always the one that was on the the, the um, like Siskel and Ebert shows, and they just had a field day with that. They just didn't like the theatricality. And people thought, oh, my God, what's happening to us? Like, oh, she had to explain it out loud, right. you know, not subtext anymore. But um, it's just uh, now I can watch the movie. You know, it's, it, it delivers. I, I, I like the exploitation. Of course, I like the art and everything. But, you know, Amityville Horror 1 had no good parts I wanted to fast forward to as a little horror junkie. Amityville 2, there's so many. They get the great makeup effects, which were the coolest thing. Mm. That stuff that you could show your friends, and they go, oh my God, it's got a little bit of sex in it. So that movie had spectacle. And that's yeah. why I think it, it, it plays well. Um, but today, and maybe it was dismissed at the time, but uh, uh, that, I don't know. Um, it's a, yeah. I, I think it's it's like um, as a gore hound, as someone who loves great performances, as someone who likes you know what you're what you're writing in your book, the whole um, you know curation of a film and the way things progress and um, uh, move forward and how they you know sidestep and do evolve into different things. All that stuff plays out in that in Amityville to the possession, and also it's a sad film. Yeah. There's a real somber melancholy um, to the film, which is really palpable as you get older. I feel that pa- the the scene in the um, the birthday sequence, but also it's the last moment where Sonny has any kind of sadness and redemption. Like you know, there's m- those moments where he's sort of sobbing. It's beautiful and hugging his family goodbye one by one so i think i think if we know what's coming Mm. you know especially if you know that uh, that that is the night that it's going to happen it's it's so it's so full of dread yeah yeah it's really strong i have to i have to be honest though that not all of that um uh, uh shocking stuff or that 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 the powerful stuff comes from a good place a lot of it was just put in there, like, oh, this is what audiences want, and uh, they, they want nudity, they want this. So it, it didn't all come from, you know, an artistic choice. It just came it, it came through, like, oh, this is what people expect, which I guess is okay, because the fact that they did that, and now it exists on its own, and we can deconstruct it. But um, I was surprised uh, that, uh, no, 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 we just did, we did that because, you know, we don't like horror movies, and we, we thought that that's what people would like. Right. So some of the stuff which I think is wonderful, I honestly can't add gravitas to it because I know that it, it came from a shameful place. But, you know, that happens. Okay. So, and, so, uh, so, for instance, like, I mean, how heavy, I don't know how heavy you go into the DeFeo case itself, but the idea of Dawn and Ronnie, their relationship was kind of a bit sickly, wasn't it? Um, from my understanding, and I think you know Amityville Two: The Possession plays up that, obviously. Um, and I think I think that scene, the incest scene, which I think from memory, from reading up on it, and I can't wait for your book because I'll be able to find out the whole um, spiel. But it was a longer sequence; it was more elongated. There was a whole thing with panties that goes on for longer, uh, and the seduction was longer. But I feel like it's such. A, I remember um, thinking, you know, even as a kid, going, it makes total sense that she'd succumb to this it's like these these are point yeah when people say why would she do that oh my god no i mean she is of that age and yeah and they're they're abused family they're abused kids you know yeah yeah no um i think you know like i said i'm the youngest of nine children 
and uh, like I guess raising nine children or whatever. And I had a Burt Young of a dad, and I I honestly think um, that that might be one of the reasons why my mother wanted to leave. Right. I used to make the joke about oh Amityville too. You know what I call that Christmas morning at the Norton, uh, uh. Um, which is funny. But uh, but he's slapping her around and like you fucking. It was just, I think it was too close to home. Mm. But uh, this is back in the early 80s where that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because you could always say, well, he's a good provider. Mm. You know, he might he might be abusive, but he's a good provider. He, he feeds the nine kids. But um, that, that scene in the bedroom, uh, Diane gives a legitimately amazing performance yeah, in that. she's amazing. Yeah. But the stuff about, oh, test audiences and everything... Amityville 2 is not something that they tested. It wasn't like they were really, really excited about the release of that. It just sort of appeared. So the stuff about, oh, too shocking, those are wonderful stories to pass on along. But it wasn't a movie that they really paid much attention to. Martha was explaining that it was a tax shelter movie. So the success or failure of it didn't really mean anything. Um, To them, it was almost like a write-off. So, it, you know, the, the stories about, oh, my God, uh, test audiences are walking out. Again, that's that's good PR. And the more those get repeated, the more they get put on the trivia at IMDb, which is just anyone can contribute to it. And uh, there's some, like, the, the ones about Amityville Horror 1 are absolutely ridiculous. Right. But uh, at least I got to debunk them. But uh, I totally buy that Diane would uh, would do that. Her character. Yeah, and it's it's a beautiful performance. She's she's amazing. The whole lot of them are terrific. Um, uh, the I just want to jump back to Amityville One. Um, you got to interview the the legend that is James Brolin. Now that's a major coup because that's like that's you know Hollywood royalty right there. Um, and that I you know I was privy enough to hear a section of that interview, which was so great because because <laughs> Mrs. Brolin. It's just, I'll just explain. So Barbara Streisand pops up in an interv- in the in middle of the interview, and it's when you got you and her, um, James are talking about Catherine Mary Stewart, right? It's like it's like she's oh she's eavesdropping, going, "You're talking about god. another ma- woman." <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that was hilarious. I'll, I'll tell that story really quickly. Well, number one, I had to deal with his his agent, who was lovely, but his agent was sort of reticent. Like, oh, James said he's already talked about this movie and everything, but. I'm sort of energetic and such a nerd and he was mentioning his other clients and they're all people like I really know like he, he like Tracy Bregman like oh have you seen Happy Birthday of Me and he sort of you know what I'll give you I'll why don't you do come to the house and, and you can interview James at his house I'm like what you know Whoa. but the, he's in LA and I, I said well I'll just do a phone interview he said well you can have an hour with James cool and it turned into like three hours we oh. talked about so many things, and he's called back, and he had his brother call me, who plays his stunt double, and uh, oh, awesome! I, mean, I wanted to be James Brolin. Now, when I brag about James Brolin now, the younger people don't know who he is. They think that he's Josh Brolin, <laughs> but um, but James held nothing back. I mean, we've all heard about his disdain for Margaret Kidder, but uh, but um, we didn't go into that because he's talked about it. But he held nothing back. Um, and it was just fast. we had a lot of stuff in common and this was during the big LA fire so there was fire all around him wow. but he was really 
um, getting into it. And that the the one and he's such a he's such a dude. I mean, he's like, oh, this girl was so hot. Awesome. And that my friend Catherine Mary Stewart did an episode of Hotel with you back in '85, <laughs> and he's like, oh. Oh, gorgeous, those beautiful blue eyes that you just want to get lost in right <laughs> as the phone picks up on the other line and it's Barbara Streisand, like, Jim, who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> right as he's objectifying another woman. And, uh, That's great. In an interview, like, about what? You know, uh, movies. Like, you know, where's the cheese? And then uh, you could tell that he wanted to talk and he was, like, sneaking out in the backyard, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, hi- hi- having a ciggy and hiding it. <laughs> Yeah, and you know I have sometimes a, a sense of humor that gets me into trouble. I don't know why I said it, but uh, she hung up, and I said, that bitch. And he was like, I know, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Uh, you're, you're calling Yentl a bitch there. That's not nice. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, also, and, you know, James Brolin, you're right. He, and I remember when I interviewed Margot Kidder, she talked about the difference between her performance, or her performance style, yeah. and James. And James was a cowboy, you know, this awesome leftover cowboy, very Hollywood, very macho, very traditional. And then there was Margot, you know, hippie and uh, you know avant garde and new wave and um, in the moment, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's very different. The guards in uh, in acting styles at that point. So mm-hmm. yeah, and that's um, cool. And it comes hard. it comes off beautifully though. I think on the film. It, it does. I think that they have a, a nice chemistry, you know. Um, uh, I did interview Margot. She was the very first one. I had, she was sort of tired about talking uh, about the movie, but I had gone to Sarah Lawrence with her daughter, and that was sort of my, even though her daughter wouldn't remember me, that was my in. And um, this was the day before she died. Mm. And, um one of my things in life, I think, that's, that's sort of what I'm good for is when I meet a lot of actors is is telling them they almost reevaluate the movies that they always put down mm. after I'm done with them. You know, and, you know, Margot was always throwing Amityville under the bus. And I was explaining, I said, you know, when you go to conventions now, it's not all Superman. She's like, you know what? You're right. Yeah. I sign a lot of Amityville. And yeah. I said, Believe it or not, it's a very important movie uh, to people. Yeah, and uh, and she sort of sort of reevaluated. James Brolin did that too. I interviewed Lee Grant for my book. Wow, cool. Uh, because she had worked with Steven Rosenberg, and we were just—I was trying to explain that she's sort of become a gay diva from the movies that she hates, and she just thought that was great, you know. So she's amazing. Like, I, you, um, I think I've mentioned it before, but one of her earliest films is Storm. Um, Fear, which is oh yeah, which is a great home invasion movie, and from there you're like hooked with her. Like she's amazing, and everything she's done, whether she's playing, you know, the cantankerous wife of Christopher Lee in yeah. the airport film, or you know, beautiful, um, you know, whore of Babylon and Damien Omen too. She's just an engaging performer to watch, and she's so good. And, and just her anger is really engaging to watch. But I remember uh, Margot Kidder after I interviewed her the year after she came to a convention here in Melbourne in Australia and um and she and she remembered she remembered the interview and she said oh we gas bagged for ages but I do recall her that was you right she's like oh we gabbed for ages yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's so yeah, cool yeah. and then she also uh from memory um was very very admirable like she admired and really loved the fact that horror fans existed and she really respected fans um and she loved horror fans because I was probably the most passionate and I think yeah. that's something she revered and respected 
started um, as she, you know, grew older and understood fandom. But I think her love-hate thing with Amityville is probably, probably maybe due to the fact that um, <laughs> the film... It dealt with stuff that she probably didn't even... She didn't really believe in. I think that was her main gripe with it, wasn't it? Like, she just sort of had this idea that it was a bit hokey. She she was sort of... Like she said, she was young, hip Hollywood. So she was into anti-Hollywood stuff. Yeah. She wanted to do like Paul Mazursky stuff. And, you know, this was a, a big budget. It was a supermarket tabloid. And like she says, this was one for the money yes. so she wasn't invested in it you know I, I did get her to come around and she's like you know what it is an effective chiller I'm so glad that I got some positive things that she said about it mm. um, but yeah I don't think that she was invested maybe if I was an up and coming actor you know what I didn't realize I knew Amityville was big I had no idea how big it was in adjusted dollars which people don't do enough when they talk about box office grosses mm-hmm. adjusted dollars that movie made like marvel money mm. you know was it the biggest uh, money maker for aip it was the biggest money maker for aip and the second biggest money maker for 1979 right and um at one point the superman was still in theaters it was the number one and two movies that year were amityville horror and margaret peters in both of them isn't that incredible you yeah know? amazing yeah, I mean, yeah, and James Brolin put to rest. I said, you know, IMDb says that you got a salary plus ten percent of the gross. He's like, <laughs> you think I'm gonna get anything from Samuel Arkov? He's like, oh, ah, that is hilarious, amazing. Uh, yeah. did, so, we, we just, um, just moving on with James Brolin, did you sneak in questions about things like Trapped and the Car and Night oh, of the of Juggler, which is such a good film? Oh. And- Course, you know, when I when I uh, worked at the film school, I could sort of I had like credibility to invite anyone to come and talk, and uh, we got James Cameron to come to talk about the Titanic 3D release, and of course I bring it up. He's like some asshole always brings up Piranha 2. I'm like that would be me. That would be me. <laughs> and, Good on you. It is best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I did. I did, uh, and he really appreciated that because no one's ever asked him. But he had amazing stories about trapped, and and, and which led to a tangent on the dog trainer, yeah. who was also on Amityville, and we laughed about Susan George trying to. I mean, Susan Clark trying to hide her cold sore through the entire movie by always putting like a phone or a menu in front of it, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, he, he's proud of Trapped. He's like, that was, he's like, you know, that was a number one watched television movie of 72. Oh. And uh, we talked about The Car. Mm-hmm. And um, again, these are movies that he dismissed. And I said, well, do you know that The Car even has merchandise? You know, that's like a, a $60 replica of The Car that mm-hmm. you can buy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was delighted by that. Um, and he still wants to work. He's like, Brian, I mean, he was almost like saying, like, if you got any leads, but uh, he's like, I just feel like I'm getting started. Now that you're telling me that some of these movies have fond memories, maybe I can sort of dine out on that, you know? So it was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, hearing about the car and, uh, and I'm a big fan of a movie that he had done that barely got released called high risk. Right. And, but, uh, he was telling me a lot about, directors that I admired and one of the things was that he had worked with Amityville 3D director Richard Fleischer and they were friends and once he found out that he directed that we talked about him for ages they were great friends 
Awesome. So, so let's move on to Amityville 3D. So you're covering that in your book as well. And isn't it great to work for a company like Bear Manor who do this esoteric sort of publishing where, I mean, right now, as I'm interviewing you, I'm looking at three of their books. One's on Dawes Butler, who did all, you know, the cartoon voices of Snagglepuss and, um, you know, Yogi and stuff. And then you've got a book on Alice, the TV show, um, and and then a Patty Duke book. So I'm just looking at these three books right now on my coffee table going, fucking hell, this is awesome. What a company, you know, just to, just to put out this stuff. Property, but New York is such a cool place. And I've become friends with Polly Holiday because she lives in the neighborhood. And we always, we, it was like a funny joke because we would always bump into each other. <laughs> and she said, no one ever recognizes her. People, they say like, were you my third grade teacher? But she is just a hoot. Um, and, and she's fun to talk to. Uh, so and about Alice and stuff yeah. like that, because no one, no one wants to talk to her. But uh, yeah, she lives in the hit East Village, and uh, oh, she's a delight. Well, maybe uh, I'll, you can hook me up with her because I probably might need her for my very special episodes book. There you go. I, I, I would love to. We, we well, during this pandemic, we haven't seen each other. We, we got to the point where she gave me her number, and I lost it. Oh. I asked her to, she's like, gremlins, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny, that little thing? You know, so. <laughs> That's awesome. She gets like a, uh, such a good death in that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said I really love the part when you're with all your cats and mm. one of your cat's name is Dollar Bill. Oh, Dollar Bill. She's like, that was my idea. I <laughs> said, Mr. Dante. <laughs> that's awesome so, but no it's great that you're working with this company because and also you're adding to film history to archive all this stuff for Amityville 1 and 2 and 3 it's really important so be proud of that Brian it's good stuff because I'm around I'm around a lot of people that that have said like why you know and uh, I don't know I, I would love it if someone sort of uh, passed the torch and Bear Manor was wonderful and I wouldn't have this book without you because you've written several books and the older I'm getting, the more I'm moving away from any kind of career as a screenwriter and director. I mean, I've, I've done some stuff, but that's a hard racket. And, uh, and you know, I have a lot of film uh, history pedigree, so I'm sort of getting into that area, which um, it's it's wonderful. Awesome. So, well, keep it up. Set me up with them. Oh, thank you. Uh, That's nice. Well, thank you, and th- thank you for doing this book. So, third film, Amityville 3D, which I recently rewatched, um, right. and and it's got great stuff. What I really liked about it is the sort of hoax <laughs> stuff. You know, the idea of you know prove, uh, trying to prove that the Amityville um, possession, the haunting, is actually a hoax, and it reminded me. My brain went straight to classic Hollywood, straight to Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, and it went to the scene in Houdini where um, uh, they're they're contacting. Houdini's dead mother and Houdini sort of unveils the, them as charlatans and it just reminded me of that that opening scene's that but then watching the film as the film progresses I'm like fuck this movie is so heavily surely heavily influenced by Poltergeist would you say that's the case? Yes uh, uh, yeah I, I I fully admit Amityville 3D is a, is a hot mess and uh, <laughs> if you can see it in 3D I mean, the new Blu-ray that's in 3D got terrible reviews, but it's it's wonderful. If you can see it in 3D, so many of the shots and things make sense. Right. Richard Fleischer was one of the pioneers of 3D. Mm-hmm. He had shot a 3D movie in the 50s. That's right. And uh, the cinematographer on that was, you know, a legendary cinematographer who shot, like, many, many movies. So some of the scenes which never played well on video 
have depth to them. And the, even the blocking stages are blocked for depth. It's not just the pole coming out. So um, it's, but it is a, it is a, a it's a, it's almost a lethargic movie. Um, sort of it's some of its accidental eccentricities are the things that I like about it now. But it's certainly not one I could put on at a party and like, <laughs> hey, let's watch this. But um, <laughs> I mean, like it it, it kind of jumps from really interesting stuff to ludicrous. Like the you know the the swordfish coming at you. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. But early in the film, there's that really, it's actually quite a moody, really creepy sequence. It kind of reminded me of Ghost Story, that beautiful film from the early yeah. 80s based on the Peter Straub book. But the the scene where Laurie Lachlan's character drowns and then she's walking through the house and, um, you know, it's like, is she alive or isn't she? And it's kind of a gaslighting that, moment. That sequence is great. It's really effective. That in is film. the sequence that everyone remembers. And that is kinder trauma for a lot of people. Mm. I remember, I'm, I'm watching it on video. Video and my mother, I was about to change it because I knew that she was going to yell at me. And she's like, "Wait, wait, this is getting good." Um, <laughs> so, uh, but that is a that is a, a, a beautiful scene, and it's very, 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 very creepy. Mm. But Amityville, the production history on that again doesn't come from a good place. The people that were assigned to do it were like, oh, "Whatever." Not all of them, but um, it's just it's crazy to me that you have, and it's only eight months later that they're rushing into production, and um, you have this veteran director like Richard Fleischer, who had been directing big movies since the. I mean, he directed Soylent Green, mm-hmm. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, yep. you know, Mandingo, like every conceivable genre, and he was in his seventies, and. Uh, it, it's a, maybe the movie's a little bit like an old man trying to dress like a teenager. I don't know. But, Aww, um, that's a cute analogy. But, um, <laughs> but, but Amityville 3 I, obviously is um, was rewritten to mimic Poltergeist, and including the PG rating. Right. There was no PG-13. Martha said the, the decision to go PG. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's funny because it is a very PG movie, except for that Candy Clark burning in the car thing which i that was a horrifying scene mm. um that might get an r today i don't know but uh amityville 3d's got a just a fascinating production history to me um and again, is martha is martha proud of it is Martha because i know she, no. she no right um i i i mean she doesn't she doesn't hate it she was curious why i wanted to talk about it oh also with part two um but again the uh, the more excited I was, the more excited she got. And, you know, this is something that really bothers you and me. I know we've gone on about this endlessly, but people can be taught what to like. Mm. Again, I was a film teacher. I probably had over 1,500 students in my tenure as a teacher. And, uh, you know, people paying two or $300,000 to follow that dream. And they really don't have any independent thought and they don't realize it. They're throwing around stuff and names only that has been put out there for press releases. So I remember I had a 35 millimeter print of Amityville 2 that I owned. And, you know, I had access to the big movie theater in Tammany Hall in New York. So I remember, you know, I would always have midnight screenings in Amityville 2. Like, why would you watch it? And then a couple of years ago, Tarantino was quoted as saying it was the best sequel since Godfather. Yeah, now so, everyone likes it. Yeah. Of course. So <laughs> that, believe it or not, as offensive as it is, that was a door opener for a couple of the people who are willing to talk about it now. 
Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're. You know, we're very similar in that sense. That you know what, we love stuff because we love stuff, and we're not loving yeah. it to to annoy people. It's actually just genuine yeah. love, and a lot. And ninety five percent of it comes from watching it as a kid, and these sure. films sticking with us and just meaning a lot to us. Um, right. and and people kind of have pooed that our love for these things throughout. And I'm sad for you that you get copying it from people when you're working on a fucking book about these things. Like you know, you're investing a long time you've been working on it for a couple of years now as well, well um, only because Bear Manor is just so wonderful and, and, and liberal and uh, you know and it's like it give just keeps you time bigger yeah. and bigger and I keep getting uh, asking for extensions I, I promise it'll be better yeah. so, but I'm not like working on it every day but as much as the Tarantino thing bothered me it is kind of wonderful that you yes. know someone gave permission for people to like these movies and it, absolutely yeah, absolutely it like the man, the man has great taste and we can't do neither um and he and he's and he's a taste maker if whether he likes it or not he is a taste maker for for people yeah for someone to like him to call it art art or whatever that really helps it get a nice release and yeah uh, it's funny because that kind of works as a double-edged sword as well with other with the uh, another aspect of that so say for instance if it's a genre filmmaker and they're talking about classic cinema and genre fans are now being introduced to classic cinema it's like yes no shit you should be watching classic musicals and classic westerns and classic film noir and you know old quote-unquote movies um because that informed everything that you love you you know people who are only obsessed with friggin 80s like so so when you so when you have you know joe dante talking about busby berkeley or john landis talking about john ford it's it's really important because these people you know when when john carpenter talks about vincent minnelli it's like yeah vincent minnelli is a master you know and you're and and, me a kick in the ass like i got some work to do Unfortunately, I don't think that happens anymore. You know, again, people spending $200,000 on an education and don't, I mean, every movie's available now. You mm. know, back in the, the, the 60s, if Martin Scorsese was in school and wanted to see Citizen King, he couldn't just put it on. They'd have to get in a car and drive to Pennsylvania and see it somewhere at midnight, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, but now people don't want that. They don't want the the the, the true Grindhouse and B-movie. They want with the Tarantino $70 million mm. um, homage to it. So that's a little depressing. But again, maybe it narrows down the, you know, it narrows down the people who really, really want it. I was a little disappointed about some of my brethren at NYU, again, getting these big gigs, um, but, you know, where they have contempt for it. But I guess that's part of the, the whole deal. But the, the Tarantino thing really did... Uh, open doors and again that's but that's also my manipulation too you know so right um, um would you would you be would you consider contacting him to maybe write a piece about amityville too I, I i really wanted to i i i don't think i ever did uh um i was hoping that i had someone in contact with him you know i'm supposed to be doing these um shorts for crypt tv which is this wonderful platform and i thought i might be able to get it in there but i heard that it's not very pleasant and uh and, and Rotania talked to him recently and um he didn't repeat that it was amazing he just said something like oh yeah i've seen that movie so i don't know <laughs> okay um, but again if I, I i mean my fantasy with that but that he would write the forward <laughs> you know mm. only because you can there's some more copies but um, right i don't know honestly i don't think i there would be a book or a 
factory Blu-ray release without Amityville 2. I think that Amityville 2 is the cult comeback is the reason why all those things got... Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I, I, uh, I'm so proud to be a part of that release as well because I, um, uh, I sent Michael Felsher the stuff that we did, that you shot and that um, we shot and that Camilla Jackson shot in LA with um, Diane. Uh, yeah. And that kind of was going to be part of the featurettes, but they had to do um, a whole reshoot because I wanted to make it look uniform and in a studio, etc., which is fine. But it got the ball rolling as to like, getting people like Ratanya and Diane on this release, which was really cool. Oh, totally. I even managed to get actresses who had tried out for it. Wow. Can you can you, yeah. can you share who, who, who was? Well, uh, my good friend, uh, Leslie Donaldson, um, you know, Canadian screen queen. She, you know, she had a fly in from Canada and did an audition for it. Um, oh, God, who else? I know Elizabeth Berridge auditioned for it. And, uh, you know, around that same time, all these actresses wanted that part in Amadeus. Right. And uh, Elizabeth Berridge ended up um, doing Amadeus, which is what Leslie read for, what Diane read for. Um, Elizabeth Berridge was also almost in Jaws 2, which I found out. Elizabeth Berridge, famous from Amadeus, but also in Toby Hooper's The, the Fun House, mm-hmm. for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and I found out from Jack's part, and forgive me, I don't remember the name, you know more about theater than I do, but it was the guy who was a hit on Broadway at the time in The Elephant Man. I forgot his name. That would probably have been Philip Anglum. Cool. Now, you have another story about Amityville 2. Uh, you have many yeah, stories about it. Well, well, more, more reflections if I wanted to be honest it's it's not a, a perfect film um, I mean what is a perfect film and some of the the, the, the criticisms of it when it came out I, I have to admit are, are kind of kind of true um, but it's an interesting movie you know and uh, Ritania and I have talked about her Razzie nomination she got the, the two she, Mommy Dearest and then right after Amityville 3 uh, Amityville 2 and I think I know why she got them and it's not her fault um do you want to hear my theory so okay well you like in the scene where sonny kills his dad with with that gun burt young literally flies across the room with a gigantic splat against the the wall and then two seconds later he shoots for tanya and there's no impact she has to stand there in a medium shot and literally just fall to the ground slowly. And, the, you know, she probably should have had a squib on her and she should have been blown across the room. So people have usually giggled at that part, blaming it on Ratania, but that's just silly. Also, when she says lines like, oh, son, it sounds like a bad line. And I didn't realize till later his name is Sonny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's not it's not like oh my father. It's um it's, it's funny. Like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she she comes from that sort of uh, group of Sarah Lawrence actors who are like in the early De Palma and stuff, where it's slight slight improv, and you know they'll repeat words and talk over each other, and it just um, I think people were still laughing because of Mommy Dearest. And I I mean it's not, not they only they only nominate like known people <laughs> um 
But Mommy Dearest, I think she got it just because of the old age makeup, which wasn't her fault because it brings down the house when she no one else is aged and all of a sudden she comes out and she's wearing like this. Hat it's amazing because I mean, she's she's wearing makeup designed by someone who worked on Bert Lars Lion in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Like, and I think that's that's cool. <laughs> so, yeah, so. Yeah, no, totally. But it just like they insisted, like, let's make her older, older, older. And yeah. all of a sudden, like, they're sitting there and it just cuts to her and we haven't seen her since she looked like our Tanya. <laughs> It's right. like it's hilarious. So, but again, not not her fault. Yeah, but, and we uh, love our Ratanya. She's she's so good. Oh, and it's, such a, and it's so lovely. I've she and I are doing audio commentaries on a couple of films, which is really cool to do. Yeah. I, this this is uh, I, I would like I, I like to think that I'm sort of the person that that helped this resurgence of Ratanya because once I realized uh, you know the being chairperson of New York Film Academy, it, it sounded cool. So I could get people to come, you know, and where for like, I had just asked them as a regular person, it wouldn't. And, uh, you know, I had, you know, I was getting people like James Cameron and everything. And then uh, someone said like, well, who do you want to do next? And Joe and I looked at each other and said, Ratanya Alda. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So we, we called her and the agent gave us her phone number and we called her and she was like, what you know and uh so i had a night a tribute to ratanya alder and she showed up and um it was you know i had never really seen an interview with her before and uh, it almost became like a roast and it was such a wonderful wonderful night we became great friends you know and she wasn't aware that some of these films had a legacy and it was funny because i said yeah yeah i know you're in a deer hunter but we're here for amityville and she just <laughs> laughed like that so well it's, a, well, it's a bigger role, I mean, and she's really proud of it. Um, and it's interesting because she, she talks about how, um, you know, Mummy Dearest would lead the way to Amityville 2, and she's like, really? From, you know, playing the help to doing the matriarch? It's like, and it's like, yeah. well, yeah, it's a big role still in Mummy Dearest. Like, it's a major role, but you're right. It's like the, you know, the third build in Amityville 2, isn't she? Third, yeah. Third, third build, yeah. yeah. I, um, uh, I, 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 She's told me a lot about how Hollywood works, and you know maybe it is a little sexist or whatever. But I, I was horrified to hear like you know she auditioned for Amityville. Mm-hmm. You know I was horrified that uh, she had done Oscar winner The Deer Hunter, and then she does a like a three minute part that she auditioned for, and when a stranger calls later, you know I was like, oh my god, that's is crazy, that isn't it? Yeah, it's bizarre unbelievable yeah um, and i love her career her career compared to her late husband's is really interesting as well because they pop up in so many films that are really iconic films like rich (laughs) you know he pops up in um looking for mr goodbar and then he's in hair and he's in panic and needle park and he's in you know he's in all this stuff um godfather and then you know she's in so much you know rocky two and then you've got um next stop greenwich village and you know it's just endless it's amazing it's an it's incredible sort of just working yeah. actors, you know, just a, a, a working, a working actor. And, uh, and, you know, they don't necessarily get paid a lot. And, um, you know, it's just, it was just interesting hearing about that. And I, it was just, she would always be a person that I would notice in a movie. Cause I used to memorize people's names. I remember they spelled her name wrong in the end of Christmas evil. Right. But again, now, or when she was, know, be, she'd be known as Ruth in some films. Yeah. Or then in Christmas evil, she's rat Tanya. But she's proud of Amityville too, which is wonderful, and I, I love that she's got a big part in it. 
And you and I know Britannia as a brunette, but most of her career, she was a blonde if there are early stuff, so. Mm, that's right. Absolutely. She pops up as a blonde in most of the early works, yeah. Yeah. Um, so. And you and I both know that Burt did not have to audition, because I think Burt had got an Oscar nomination only a few years before, mm. but uh, everyone else did. Nobody auditioned for Amityville 3, which is hilarious. I mean, that movie came together so quickly. Robert Joy said, I got a call. It's like, I don't have to audition. Because he had been in ragtime, but he's like, he's playing a doctor and he looks like a 12-year-old. It's like, I, I, really? And the next thing you know, I'm on a plane to Mexico. You never had to audition. He said, that never happens. Cool. So one thing that really stands out for me in Amityville 2 especially is the design for Sonny Montelli's possession. Like, it's really terrifying that, that the the concept work there and the way he looks and that great panorama shot, you know, the one that sort of circular shot that ends with his face, yeah. which is really yeah. terrifying. So can you, did you get a, some insight into that from certain makeup designers and artists? A lot. Um, cool. You know, talking about Amityville 2, I mean, Amityville 1, or there, there was no makeup effects in it, you know, it's just, a, it's almost a TV-ready movie, and, uh, and it looks like a TV movie, Amityville 2 has got all that flamboyant camera work, and that shot where the camera goes up and over Jack, I mean, that was a, a day, you know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, for a horror nerd like me, Amityville 2 delivers the goods, because it had all those amazing makeup effects. Stuff like American World for London and The Howling get all the credit. But um, from, from what I learned is that that was the beginning of the air bladder stage where they found a way to make the puffed skin pulsating. Mm-hmm. So Amityville 2, for the effects guys, is known as uh, one of the early air bladder movies. But um, the original, one of the original scripts, it's his makeup is supposed to be that of an Indian chief. Right. Consider, and it has a hatchet mark in the face. All the references to Indian stuff has been cut out of that movie, but it did play a very, very big part. Um, you know, of course, they wanted it to look like The Exorcist a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, the makeup was cutting edge for the time. And these guys who were doing it were very young. They're only like 22. Mm. And literally... In, venting it as they go. Caglione was um, up and coming, and, and by the time he did Amityville 3D, he got promoted to head makeup guy, so, um, but, uh, you know, some of that stuff is, 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 is pretty amazing, but it was new at the time, so maybe we look at it now, and it's like, wow, whatever, but uh, a very, very effects-heavy picture. Oh, it's beautiful, and even, like, the sort of elongated possession sequence, sorry, exorcism sequence at the end with the body coming apart is amazing as well, but I really do love the subtlety in the early stuff because it kind of reminded me of things like um, The Beast Within, which actually has lots of heavy bladder work in that last moment. (laughs) That's an amazing film. And also... It's amazing, but they, they, this, they linger on it too long. I mean, it's just like... Oh, it goes forever. <laughs> but as gore hounds, you love that. Um, so in regards to Sonny, obviously, um, Jack Magna, what a remarkable performance. It, it's so powerful. It's it's completely nuanced. There's so much going on there. And, uh, you know, and, and he was the one that we never really heard from, you know, mm. uh, Again, and it always would make me mad that people assume that someone didn't make it in the industry because they stopped acting. That's often not the case. They just moved on to different things, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, but uh, 
you know, Jack was, I know that someone you and I were just fascinated with and we didn't like, he didn't necessarily like to, to talk about the movie. Um, he doesn't want to go on record necessarily, you know, for, he's got a family and he's moved on from acting, but we have talked, I know you've talked to him and Jack and I have become friends. We, we message each other all the time. We talked to yesterday and it, it turned out uh, he's from Connecticut. I'm Rhode Island, Massachusetts that our, our families have friends in common. So, um, and, and sometimes when we talk, the Amityville never comes up. I mean, he's an encyclopedia on movies mm -hmm. and, uh, what an uh, amazing guy. He can't necessarily uh, c contribute um, officially, but, uh, you know, it's just it, what I find interesting is he was in that wonderful time in New York in the early 80s where people, you'd go for an audition and you'd be up against all your friends in that kind of energy, you know, working in a restaurant at the same time as, you know, you got a movie coming out, which I just think is a sort of a, a magical time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's old in Amityville, too. He's 28 in that movie, in, in real life. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a little bit older than he's playing. But um, what an what a amazing person. And he, he, when I was in Massachusetts, we had uh, coffee. And um, But uh, from, from what I understand from the makeup guys, it's like John, he spent hours in makeup. You know, we all hear about Linda Blair, but, um, you know, he, he took the brunt of that shoot, you know? Yeah, he's he's it's awesome. It's a it's a, it's a one of those performances that stays with you, and it's it's that period. And I, I talk about this. I'm doing a book at the moment on ordinary people, um, and there's a whole wave of these movies during that period about angry, disenfranchised young men, and it, it crosses genre. Um, and Amityville Two is one that I think stands out. It's kind of that kind of because male possession is pretty rare uh, in film, as you know. You have got films like Christine and um, Nine Seven Six Evil, but uh, it, even, and Freddy's <laughs> yeah, and, and you know Freddy's revenge and stuff, but they're always kind of these sort of vulnerable boys that get possessed, and it's kind of um, it's interesting to see that <clears throat> in the in the response to what's happening in the late seventies, early eighties to young boys in film, young teenage boys, um, whether they're you know uh, you know fame or the warriors or whatever it is, they're always kind of these angry you know young men, and Amityville Two is one of those responses to that kind of wave, which is really cool, um, and I think his performance really captures that. He's just as good as you know Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. I feel oh, you know it, yeah. it's that kind of it's that strength of that performance, and I fucking love that you unearth great stuff like that. That commercial he did, like fans loved that. That's also that the, the what is it like yeah. petrol? Was it gas? Gas? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he did a he did he, he did a, a bunch of commercials, and of course we all know that he was he did a little bit in Firestarter for mm -hmm. for Martha, but uh, he's got a wonderful family now, and. Um, uh, um, but, uh, uh, God, what was I going to say? The, um, oh, pardon me. I'm so sorry. I'm That's having a brain okay. fart. What was the last thing that you saw? Unearth the commercial. Uh, I had read somewhere that, you know, he was, when he was being groomed, I think for sort of a Kevin Bacon type thing. Right. And, uh, I think he was up for, I read somewhere that he was on the short list for diner and, um, but, uh, no, it's a good performance. And the wonderful thing is when I look back at vintage interviews from major publications, even the ones that called the movie vile and disgusting, he always gets a shout out. You know, he, I, I, 
I say he's amazing in an unplayable role. I mean, it really is. If you know about directing and, and, and you know giving motivation, it's almost unplayable mm. uh, because it's contradictory. But uh, very, very good. And uh, one time I talked to him and I, I said, I, I hope you realize that, you know, even the people through threw the movie under the bus, you've got some wonderful notices. Even Roger Ebert. Yes, yes, I recall that. That review was great. It was like, this movie, blah, blah, you know, it rips off things like The Exorcist, which is superior, blah, blah, blah. But it has terrific performances. Yeah. Sure. And at least it rips off the good parts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's no Kinderman role, though, which thankfully, thank God, you know, there's, oh, no, well, I guess there is, isn't there? There's the. You know my opinion on that. Like, I, I honestly. I don't it's funny, the last, yeah, the last recording I did with, was with a fellow film critic and friend, Sally Christie, and we were talking about the role of policemen in um, erotic thrillers, and generally they're the lead characters characters right but right. when you when you're talking about horror movies they just pop up <laughs> and you hate that <laughs> I, I i i hate that um and i it, it's like telling a christian you hate jesus when i think that um lee j cobb serves no narrative purpose in the exorcist people say well he was in the book and i'm like well now it's a movie and uh <laughs> and uh I, i'll quote alfred hitchcock they say why don't your characters call the police so, because it's boring Right, right. <laughs> you always have the character. Like, uh, the strangest one to me is Harry Dean Stanton, wonderful, and Christine. And Christine. Like, why, why, why are you suspicious? And he's the one who sort of brings up the supernatural. But um, there's something always boring to me about a police investigation sniffing around for clues that the audience <laughs> already knows the answer to by their commitment to seeing the movie. Right, but, yeah, uh, yeah. They're catching yeah. up with the catching up with the um the audience. The audience is catching already caught on exactly. But what I, what I love about Kinderman and what Sally and I discuss is that Kinderman is a guy that you would have a drink with because he's a film fan. And there's that really cute moment where he asks for oh. Chris's autograph, which I always oh, love. No, he's a he's a beautiful mm. character and a wonderful performance yeah. and uh, he deserves his own movie that's better than Exorcist 3 but, um, <laughs> oh, more controversy from Brian no, no, no I know <laughs> I'm sorry I just stuck to my original opinion I'm not I'm not gonna re, uh, you know it's just like I stuck to my original opinion about The Shining but um, right <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, no wonderful but it does screech the movie to a halt every time he's on there. So. Right, right. It's funny because the um, Fridkin's favourite shot in that movie involves uh, Alan Burson and him at the table having their yeah. conversation and the camera zooms in on them um, as they're getting closer to each other's truths and it goes back just to establish oh. them as enemies. Really beautiful stuff. No, it's good. But the, one of the worst throwaway pieces of uh, police investigation that was in Amityville Horror. You got the Val Avery character. Oh, yeah. Who shows up cigar chomping, serves no purpose, and he disappears <laughs> from the movie. I know. And it's annoying because you're like, this guy's going to be fun. Like, he's going to be cool to what? He's like Kojak. But not at all. It just, just disappears. I really think Amityville would have benefited from at least one scene where uh, Rod Steiger was with the couple because we're supposed to believe only through exposition dialogue that he's very close with Margot Kidder and they share no scenes together and I don't yeah. buy it. Ah, and he only looks a mile away and the whole through line of the movie is that he can't reach them. It's a very... It's <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's funny you mentioned that because Exodus 3 has this whole idea that Kinderman and Karis are best friends. When? Like, when did they oh, develop their I, friendship? They just see each other I once. I always brought that up. I don't... I have brought that up to people.
people and they just get offended. No one can defend it. The whole movie is predicated on that he is so, he was uh, such memories of his friend and they what, met once? Yeah. Oh, that movie's a, that, that, don't get me started. That movie's a hot mess. I, I don't know. <laughs> that, 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 that makes no Sense. Now I'm oh. glad you brought up Rod Steiger. Now look, he he likes to scream all of his lines in Amityville, and it's fine. Yeah. But I, like he he's always played this incredible heavy, like whether it's Oklahoma as Judd um, Fry or it's um, yeah. um, the Illustrated Man or Wolf Lake, which is so terrifying in. And he yeah. does this role, and he's meant to be, you know, the the, the priest, and he's this fuck. He's just he's scarier than the bloody pig in the window and everything else in the film so yeah, so but at least he's committed to it you know he's oh god yeah did you get great stories regarding him from people but do, he's, he's do a, you know that if you really think about it he's the only one who is really um hurt by that house i mean yeah yeah the, the family doesn't really have anything sort of bad happen to them but he, he goes blind he's tortured it's just i know <laughs> The house has it in for him. Um, I'm glad you got um, that on the PR campaign for the movie. He supported it and you know went on tour and everything. So it is nice. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm glad you got um, Brolin's brother. That's really cool because that is a really effective use of a, of a of a sibling in a film. And funnily enough, you mentioned Christine, and um, I did a book on Christine as well, and um, yes. talked Alexandra Paul's sister. Um, was her stunt double, and um, yeah. it's really interesting that that's that's kind of a connected. And thing. also, there's one other Amityville connection that you and I both know with Christine, the um, actress who plays his mother. Oh my God! Yes, Christine Belford. Tell the story. Christine Belford lived at 112 Ocean Avenue in the Amityville house. Incredible! Uh, yeah, she grew up there. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Yeah. It's just yeah. nuts. So when I first started the book, I'm like, I have to get her. Now I realize it wouldn't necessarily fit because I'm trying to avoid the real crime. I just want to talk about the movies. Um, yeah. But uh, look, it all comes full circle. We should end the podcast now. It comes full circle. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. I didn't get her for my book either, which sucked. Um, and she's great. She popped up in a Golden Girls episode. She plays um, Rose's daughter uh, oh. in an episode. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, talking about television, going back to TV movies, one of my favourites is Sybil. And young Sybil, young Sally Field, is played Natasha by Natasha Ryan. Ryan. Did you get Natasha Ryan in the end? Because I know you were I after. many, many, many false leads and like 800 phone numbers. No, I did uh, not get her. Damn. And the last... Um, bit of information I had her. It didn't sound like she was doing very well. Oh. Um, she gave up acting. But boy, what a what a list of genre credits she had, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Sybil, The Entity, uh, Kingdom of the Spiders. Mm-hmm. So I know, amazing. <laughs> Just yeah. amazing, amazing kid actors. And the other, the boys in the in Amityville? The boys, Mino Paluce, Plus. I didn't know that he was the brother of Soleimun Fry. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, we had a nice long talk. And Casey Marble, I didn't think I could get, but um, one man that I've been talking to is veteran legend stunt coordinator Chris Howell, C. Thomas's father. Yeah. And he says, I, I know Casey, I'll get in touch with you. Oh, how that cool. One. That's awesome. And also, I love. Um, 
um, um, um, the, the the kid from Bless the Beasts and Children grown up as um, oh, her brother. Yeah. Lovely guy. He sent me some nice pictures of him and Margot. Oh, he was a, you know, and he, he was just like, why wouldn't I want to talk about this movie? You know, I, I, I got to go to New York. I got to shoot in L.A. It was a big movie, and I was so excited to see it when it came out. And, and uh, it's just it's the nice things you hear. I hate it when I find out that an actor never saw the movie that they were in. You know? Yeah, I know it sucks. And such a collaborative effort. Like, don't you want to see how it cuts together and what everyone else's job? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because so, with your book, are you going to cover certain sequences that have always stuck struck you as kind of weird? For me, with yes. the with the first Amityville Horror, it's the whole trying to find the money for the caterer and you're like fucking hell are we going to sit with this whole sequence for ages and then you have the you know the the bathroom sequence but i love eddie bath um because he was awesome as bruno montelli's father uh, sorry bruno martelli's father in fame do you remember that he was oh yeah is he the caterer yeah, he's the caterer in Amityville. But that whole subplot, okay, like it goes on for a little long, long. It goes on for a little long. And and, and that's become the stuff of, uh, of you know, ribbing the movie a little bit. Like, why don't the ghost one alone? But, you know, I, I figured it out. And, and there, is some, there is some nice subtext to that. Because money is so... It, it, money can tear a family apart. Mm-hmm. And something like $1,500 to a struggling family is a lot of money. And adjusted dollars that would be huge and you know you and i know that a lot of the subtext of amityville has to do with um you know uh home ownership and debt and everything like that so i can i can understand why that would be such a a big deal it might not play well in the movie but uh um i i know people who have dissolved friendships over a hundred dollars you know (laughs) And also, yeah. like, questioning in people's integrity and, you know, the, the idea of theft and um, not paying debts and stuff. Because, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. So, so that's uh, – actually, this is really cool to bring up now, Brian, because I know you're you're really adamant that the book is going to be completely uh, sort of production history, you know, oral yeah. history about the films. But you just then outed yourself as someone who does sure. understand film criticism and, you know, understand you know idi- idiosyncratic oh. thought or even, like – just critical I thought. Or, so, right, right. So, um, so when you t- so, so when it, it go, when the the you when trying to tear the family apart, that is the perfect way to do it. You know. Yeah. So yeah. would so you're not going to add any kind of sort of you know critical insight in the book within the within the sort of text at all, or I'm just keep it all to my introduction, okay. which is uh, what Peter Brackey did. Um, yes. Know, it's gonna my introduction. You know, that's usually the part people skip. But it's, uh, you know, I'm going to cover the, the, the friends I made along the way and what the process was. And, you know, last year I turned 50 and I had my birthday party in L.A. And Joe arranged, like a lot of people I had interviewed, they came to my birthday party. It was wonderful. That's lovely. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Brian Fuller, our friend, has been very helpful. He's the one who set me up with Martha because they had done Hannibal together. You know, he was there. And it was just, it was a nice. I made some, some friends for life. Brolin and Barbara Streisand did not show up. But, <laughs> that would have been cool. But I have an open invitation. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, Brian Brian Fuller's great. Now, I, and he gave you the Howling book for the present. That's really nice. That was sweet. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah, he gave me your book. 
<laughs> so what's your plan after this book because i feel i really hope that you've got the writing bug now brian and you're going to move on move forward and do more either monographs or books on you know film history or you know focus on certain horror films that you're obsessed with and love and have had you know not much in the way of you know coverage as far as book space goes so what, right. what what's your idea next i don't i don't i don't know i just i recently got out of teaching that was um mm, that's that a big was deal consuming. and plus it was you know i was the energetic teacher and i like to think that uh the students would come out you know you, you, you hear that film students like now they they oh you hate everything because you know how movies are made mine would try try to get them to appreciate movies and be excited about it yeah. but that was just exhausting so i don't know and you and i know there's not a lot of money in film criticism but uh I did, I did spend a lot of time and I had some of the most amazing uh, teachers that have taught me because, you know, nowadays anyone who's got a blog can do it. But, um, and now that, you know, some of these movies have more of a, uh, a respectability, I would love, I would love to do that. And so, so set me up, brother. Um, <laughs> you know, I, some of these interviews that I've done are just for fun, but you know, that one I sent you for Lee Grant talking about her genre credits and I got enough of the Brolin stuff to have a nice interview there, but I'd, I'd love to do that. I mean, it's stuff that I would just do for fun anyway. Right. Um, one of the things that I was always being tapped for, this was years ago, uh, you know, I would get a call and I think someone wants to interview me about, you know, something that I did, like a, like a movie, but it was usually about, oh, can you be the, the horror person to give us a quote on something or, you know, so, but anyway, that would be, that's a, that's a nice thing. And, now I like to uh, to tell people that it's okay, you know, <laughs> to talk about some of these movies. Also, I think, and this is you and I are a little different. That sometimes, you know, I think it's okay to, to laugh at you know mis missteps, especially if I know that the movie was made by people who would never want to go see the movie <laughs> anyway. But um, you know, the odd choices, but. Uh, okay. <laughs> Are you talking about a certain Frankenheimer and a mutant mother bear? Or oh my god, did you ever see the Blu-ray on that and, and listen to what David Seltzer said? I haven't got it yet. I have to. I've ordered oh. it though. Yeah, hated him, hated him. But I do love. I posted the clip that Talia Shire, you know, talking about the essence of the role and the subtext, and then she ends it by saying she never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's hilarious. I loved her um, stuff on Windows. That was a great release. Oh, my God. Windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that she participated in that. I and Elizabeth that. Ashley screams. She's like, get something else to fucking protest again. It's like, so good. Just chain ask, smoking. Ask Joe Zazzo to tell you his uh, Elizabeth Ashley story someday. I just, think- it, uh, I'll just tell it. She walked through in a hallway. They passed each other. And she went, excuse me. <laughs> That was um, it. What's that? That was it. That's it. But, but it's Joe, you know. So, so there we go. And then he's like, "Excuse me." Um, one other thing I want to say about Amityville Three, only because you would, you're more well versed than I think in Broadway and theater. Um, Candy Clark said to me that you know Candy Clark had won an Oscar for American Graffiti, and she was you know. A well-known actress she said uh she, uh, brian i'll never get to the end of it but i have the sneaking suspicion that i replaced someone on amityville she said she got the call 
she went down to Mexico right away. Like they bought clothes off the rack and uh, they were already shooting. And I asked Martha, and Martha didn't know, but I found out there was someone who was cast, and she was actually listed in the trades. She actually went to Caglione and had her whole body cast to be burned a la Candy Clark. And did I tell you who it was? No. It's uh, someone who is more famous from Broadway, but I know her from TV. It was Christine Ebersole. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. great artists on Broadway. Yep. And uh, she got to drop out the last minute because Amadeus. Uh huh. That's so incredible. I thought that was very, very interesting. That is. Yeah. So good. No, 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 that's terrific. Um, okay, cool. Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking all things Amityville. Uh, we look forward to the book. When do you sort of suspect the, uh, the book kind of surfacing? Do you have a. Oh, yeah polish it up and again I'm, I'm i'm learning about this as we go and it's it's interesting i mean it's just now it's like um formatting the um all these beautiful pictures and everything mm. you know so uh but i i have your books and i have uh, peter brackey's books which are sort of shepherding me through this process and um Hopefully, hopefully early next year, you know, so right. now it'll be the 42nd anniversary of Amityville. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it's every, every now and then when I get a little bored with it, another uh, amazing interview will pop up and, you know, at some time I'm going to have to put the cork in it, you know. But, uh, yeah, I love how exhaustive you're going with it as well because I, I kind of do that as well. Like, get everyone. If they're available, yeah. get them. Why the hell not? Because they, they've all got great stories. They've all got great input. Yeah. Um, Sometimes the the the, uh, the people with the smallest role in it have the best stories. So uh, the, what just, I will say about Amityville too, everyone has agreed, especially the cat's mother, the kid's mother. It did nothing for them, nothing. She said, "You know what? It was a waste of time. I'm trying to get the kid to career. It did nothing." Ritania said it did nothing for her. It opened and she couldn't even get her agent to go see it, and it was playing everywhere. Wow. You know? Yeah, it's uh, and it, it, it made money it made only a fraction of the original but as far as you know having a, a movie under your belt for your career did you know that uh Ritania, Brent Katz and Bert are in um last, last exit to Brooklyn yeah that's right yeah. yep Ritania's Rita- um Alexis Arquette's mother in it yeah yeah that great that great scene you know I don't even think she's credited in that in that movie but that's a, that is a a, a good scene. That's a, yeah, it's a hard film to watch. Beautiful film. Brutal. Yeah, and Burr is very good. Burr is top build in that picture. Oh, he's terrific. Him and Ricky Lake are really cool, good together as well. Like, they're great. Yeah, and, and Burr does not play, if I remember, an abusive loud. He's actually got a uh, heart in that movie. Right? Yeah, he does. He's actually one of the most admirable characters in the fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but again, I have to give a shout out to you because I, I probably wouldn't have a book and you just make it seem attainable and uh, it would just be so nice to have my name on a book and uh, writing about a movie that you know I grew up with and uh, that I would actually want to read, which is nice. Some people I know are doing projects that they wouldn't necessarily, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's been it's been fun and uh, I got the... Facebook group, which uh, called For God's Sake, Get Out, the Making Amityville Horror, which is um, sort of chronicling the process, and uh, and the people have been donating stuff that they have, which is wonderful, and uh, so it, I would say it's a wonderful collaboration, but um, 
I can't wait to see what it looks like. And now it's like things I didn't realize, like, what about a cover, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All all the frills, exactly. All the trimmings. Well, it's been a pleasure, Brian. And yeah, good luck with it. And I think it's going to be an amazing book. And I'm very happy you're doing it. So be super proud. Like, it's going to be an awesome, awesome achievement. Thank you. And, uh, and and stay safe over there. You know, I'm in the heart of COVID Central with uh, New York City. So. But anyway, it's helped. The quarantine has helped me get a lot of work done. <laughs> oh, there, there's an upside. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Brian. Okay, and let's talk again soon. Excellent.